Previously on Blockbuster. It's supposed to be dark. You can't see it. I think I know how it's supposed to look. God damn it, Jim. Let's just calm down. I will not be spoken to Jim, like other. You're fired. I want you out. Jim. God damn Ah. All right. I want to move this out of London. They're not going to let us move this back to the States, Jim. I got a new cut of the film and nothing's in sync. Yeah, we rearranged some shots. We really can't do that. If I had more time, I could make it 100%. We'll just get somebody who can. Are you kidding? What'd you think, Dad? Huh? Oh, it was, it was very scary, yes. You know, Philip, you, you really gotta be more supportive of Jim. I think he's got enough praise already. You see this shit? Total bullshit, man. What do I do now? You just do it again. Better. <laughs> I don't know if you can really ever change the world with a single movie. Then why are you doing this? I'm Matt Schrader, and Blockbuster starts now. Morning, folks. What's the purpose of your visit? Recreation. I'm taking my son for scuba lessons. That true, son? Yes, sir. In Buffalo. Just a day trip. Very good. There you go. Welcome to the United States of America. Thank you. February, 1969. Teenage James Cameron is in the car with his dad heading 26 miles across the U.S.-Canada border to take scuba lessons at a YMCA in Buffalo, New York. It would be a rare bonding experience between Philip and his oldest son, who had recently been inspired after seeing 2001 A Space Odyssey to start filming with the friend's Super 8 camera, shooting rudimentary spaceship battles against a black velvet background in their garage. Jim. How'd you know how to build that spaceship? I just thought about how it would probably work. Struts, propulsion, pipes, you know, and just glue those on. Huh. Phillips still didn't take kindly to James' interest in science fiction worlds. It was a waste of his time and potential, and Philip believed it was irresponsible parenting to condone such fantastical pursuits. You could be an engineer someday, you know, Jim? Yeah, I know that, Dad. You have a knack for it. Like I did, but it takes a lot of hard work, you hear? Anything worth anything takes hard work. Philip was an electrical engineer at a paper factory in Ontario, a fourth generation Canadian. He was tough, strong. The only person to melt his icy blue collar heart was Shirley, the blonde, blue eyed, free spirited tomboy he married. And Philip's job paid a decent enough wage to support a growing family on one income. A tried-and-true formula for a happy life, Philip thought, and the ultimate goal for James as well. Hey, Dad. Yes, son? Why do we live in Canada? We have our roots in Ontario. Our family. Way back to your great-great-great-grandfather in the 1820s. He came over from Scotland. He was a teacher, like your Grandma Rose, you know? The 1820s? Oh, yeah. Long time ago. How do we know all that? Well, they've been written about. The Cameron name goes way back. Out of tradition, you know, for centuries. They fought for freedom against the English. The Cameron clan had a long history, centuries fighting for their own independence. 
nearly since the William Wallace Rebellion of the 13th century depicted in the film Braveheart. Philip was rarely excited unless there was a hockey game on the radio, but he saw James as the continuation of a proud Cameron name. That's what it means to be a Cameron. Strength, determination, you know? In Scotland, they still ring city bells when the leader of the Cameron clan enters Glasgow. They do? Yeah, it's really something. Whoa. You're part of a long tradition, son. Philip saw in young James a strong will, like his own. That's why Philip thought these scuba lessons would be so good. They'd pull him away from his fantasy stories and plunge him deeper into the real sciences. Looks like it's right up here. So if our family was all in Scotland, why did they come to Canada? Oh, well, uh, for a better life, I suppose. Oh, okay. You got your fins? <laughs> yep. And the mask and snorkel. The classes were expensive, more than $100 over several weeks of pool dives. But Philip saw his son eager to learn the basics and first to participate in the drills. Most grueling were the military-style diving and harassment drills. When the instructor would rip the mask and regulator off, It trained James not to panic when things went wrong, to look for solutions. True to the Cameron name and his father's support, James refused to give up. After weeks of training, he earned his certification. Dad? Thanks for doing this. Ah, oh, son, well, you're welcome. It was really cool. I'm proud of you, Jim. You're growing up to be a great young man. This is Blockbuster. The story of James Cameron. Episode 7. August 9, 1989. NBC Studios at 30 Rock in New York City. James Cameron is in the green room, nervous about his television debut as a guest on Late Night with David Letterman, the show that came on after Johnny Carson's Tonight Show ended. He was the second guest tonight after stand-up comedian Sam Kinison, so we'd only get a few minutes, but still, this was much-needed exposure for the abyss, which so far was failing to attract much attention for its opening. All right, Mr. Cameron, you all set? Oh, uh, yes, yes. We have about three minutes, if you want to come with me. Okay, uh, great. Okay, so I'll show you where to stand just off stage, and then Dave's going to introduce you. G great, do I wait for the music to play? No, or... you'll hear the audience applaud, and then you can walk in. Ah, okay. Back in 60. All right, you see that yellow X? You can stand right there. You'll be just off camera until he calls you. Oh, perfect, okay. You walk out, the set is on the left. You go in front of the set first, 
They'll shake your hand and then take a seat. Okay. Easy enough. Fifteen. <laughs> James looked at his hands. They were shaky. Remember, it's live. Thank you the audience. So if you stumble, just keep going. Davis is blue no cards and talking points just in case. Oh, okay. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. And back in five, four, three, and Aliens. His new film is called The Abyss. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to James Cameron. James rocked back on his heels before stepping forward onto the stage to see an audience of people and three large broadcast cameras all looking at him. He walked to his left and saw Dave, hand extended for hey, James, a handshake. Pleasure to see you. How are you? Getting better. Have a seat. James was visibly nervous. Oh, uh, now this is, uh, we've been joking about having the director of this film on, but this is not just an ordinary film, is it? This is a little something special. Uh, mm -hmm. Well, we, we shot underwater, which, uh, I think you should do a show underwater sometime. You know, we've actually uh, saw the soundstage. talked about it, but it seemed like it would be logistically uh, darn near impossible. Uh, the, the budget for this film was, what, 30, 40 million dollars? Uh, 43 million. And what, what was the budget on the first film you directed? The first film I directed, which I was fired from, was uh, called Piranha 2. Uh, and th that was 600000 and the second film was The Terminator, and that was $6 million. Uh, next film after that was Aliens, and that was uh, $17 million, and then this one was, was 43. So the, the next film on that curve sh would be about $150 million. Yikes. Uh, My phone's not going to ring for a while. Do you think somebody will spend that kind of money on a film? No, no, I, I, I don't think so. <laughs> it was unimaginable for a film to cost more than $100 million. It had never been done before. And James was realizing firsthand, when you spend a lot of money on a film, there's a different standard. Everyone expects it to be a huge hit. Well, this, uh, this has opened uh, nationwide now, is that the deal? Yeah, yeah, all over. And, and uh, do you think, is it going to be like one of these big ones, like Batman or some of the others that have... It's hard to say. Yeah, it's anybody's guess. All right. You know? uh, <laughs> James hated comparisons like that. Batman had a similar budget and had earned $70 million on opening weekend earlier that year, a smash hit. The Abyss was struggling already and would fail to ever make back its money in theaters. It's the abyss, and uh, this is the uh, man responsible for it, James Cameron. Pleasure to see you. Thank you very much. For yeah, time. thanks. The box office failure of the abyss would devastate James, who began dating a promising young director named Catherine Bigelow, met through Lance Henriksen and Bill Paxton, who were both starring in her first film. Their relationship would only last a short time, but James helped her develop her next film, Point Break. Around the same time, The Terminator was rapidly gaining a cult following on television, and then home video. Comic books and action figures had been commissioned, which led to more and more home video rentals. James had sold his entire stake in The Terminator to help it get made, so he personally didn't stand to make anything off its success. But more and more fans began to wonder when they might get a sequel. Sure enough, the studio came calling. Hemdale had sold the film rights to a company called Carol Co. Pictures, which was now offering a big budget for James to direct a sequel. He hadn't originally planned on it, but he knew a big budget meant he could push the limits of visual effects, something he'd wanted to do since he was studying in the USC Film School Library. 
James would bring in his old pals. Randy Frakes came on as a creative consultant to help shape the story, and Bill Wisher would co-write the script with James. Arnold Schwarzenegger and Linda Hamilton would both return. Terminator 2 was a go. Spring, 1991. Midway through filming Terminator 2, Judgment Day, and James once again found his professional life bleeding over into his personal, with growing feelings toward one of his cast members. Randy, you got a minute? Of course, man. They strolled out of the soundstage, away from other voices, to a little cafe nearby. As soon as they took their seats, James asked a question. Uh, Randy... What is the stupidest thing a director can do? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, maybe go to war with your producer or, oh, no. No, fall in love with your leading lady? Yes. Are you telling me you've done that? Yes. Linda Hamilton? Yeah. Oh my God. Many films, especially ones with big budgets, have been derailed by romantic relationships forming. Linda had played Sarah Connor in the first film, but there was no spark because James and Gail were together. Now there was chemistry between them. Well, what are you going to do about that? I don't know. I'm trying to work it out. What made James different from other filmmakers was he never let anything interrupt his career. Terminator 2 would become an action-packed hit, considered one of the best action movies ever. James quickly lined up another action spectacle with Arnold, True Lies. But even as his movies succeeded, James was entering a crisis. Was this it? Just action movie after action movie. He would marry Linda Hamilton, who soon became pregnant with their first child. James was torn between a family and a career he found increasingly unfulfilling. His father was right. This was no way to live a life, to pursue a career. He wasn't advancing humanity in any way with his fast cars and explosions. There had to be more he could do, or push, or pioneer, or invent. Something. James Cameron had lost his way. Hey Jim, it's Al Giddings. I, uh, I don't know if you're in L.A. now. There's a screening at the Academy this week. A documentary. I think it's right down your alley and worth the time. We'd love to see you. It was winter, if there was such a thing in Los Angeles. It was 50 degrees and gray. It reflected James' own depressed internal turmoil. Not having a purpose was the worst thing that could happen to a Cameron. And he felt a sense of aimlessness walking into a screening of an underwater documentary film. His friend Al Giddings, the world's leading underwater cinematographer he'd worked with on The Abyss, had recommended he come and see this. This was a showcase of underwater filming, cutting-edge tech, and that was something James always appreciated. But the subject matter of this documentary fascinated him. One of the most famous disasters in history, the deadly 1912 sinking of the Titanic, the ship thought to be unsinkable. It wasn't a very uplifting tale, but it scratched all the right spots for James, who could barely contain himself in the screening. Oh, wow. Th that's the ship? 
the greatest of human achievements versus the power of nature. 1,500 people died aboard the Titanic or in the water after the ship plunged into the Atlantic Ocean. And if someone could create a documentary film showing part of an underwater dive, James saw the potential for something bigger. Oh, now that, that's just amazing. A massive canvas to paint a story about humanity tested by tragedy and loss and the strength it endures. This, this is really something. As James left the theater, he already had ideas firing. Titanic could be a spectacle unlike any he'd done before. March 1995, 20th Century Fox Studios. James had set up a meeting with Peter Chernin, who oversaw 20th Century Fox. Jim, thanks for coming up. Hey, Peter. So sorry for the wait. Mel Gibson has this movie coming out, and the distribution is a mess. <laughs> We're splitting it up with Paramount, so it's just... No, not at all. Just uh, was, was, was just a few minutes. Come on in. Great to see you. Uh, what's the movie? Oh, uh, it's called Braveheart. All about the Scottish uprising against the English. Oh. Alan Ladd producing it. Have you met Alan? No, I haven't. Oh, well, the film looks incredible. It's just... It's almost three hours long. Mel's directing it, right? How is it? Yeah, oh, it's it's gripping, not slow at all, but you know the deal. Longer movies mean fewer screenings per theater, right. smaller return at the box office. Here, come on in. Can I get you anything? Coffee? Sparkling water? I would not turn down a coffee. Shelly, can we do two coffees? Yes, sir. How do you like it? Oh, uh, just black is great. Thank you. James had brought along a hardcover coffee table book of paintings called Titanic and Illustrated History, and he'd folded in the corners of a few pages so he could flip to them easily. Well, in short, it's a love story. <laughs> well, isn't every film. And is there a Terminator involved? No, 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 not like that. <laughs> a real love story. Peter didn't take him seriously. After all, he was an action movie guy, known for explosions and stunts and chases. The opposite of romance. A love story, as in an homage to... Romance. An actual... A couple falling in love. Oh, that's... Uh, quite a bit different from... So, we set it in the most tragic of places. This is where the spectacle comes in. Right there. He opened the book to a two-page spread, a stunning painting of the Titanic sinking at an angle with all the lifeboats and distress flares firing in the sky above. Romeo and Juliet on the Titanic. So, what I'd like to do is do a dive to the Titanic site and film it. Highest quality footage ever captured down there. We'll bring down a lighting rig because it's, it's pitch black and, and we can use it in the final film. What's that gonna cost? About $2 million. What? Think about it like this. It would cost you at least that to get going on a film, locking up the slot, securing script rights and talent. Well, that's true. So this is less than that. And I'll write the script. It's a little unusual thing to be plunking money down for, I know. But we need the shots for the movie, and we can use it for publicity, too. Oh, good point. We can say we shot the real Titanic. It'll pay for itself. Peter saw a spark of something new and visionary in James' blue eyes. We can use the Russians, use the Russian subs they have available for things like this. The marketing value of having this real footage will be worth millions. Making a movie two and a half miles down. You're damn right. Uh, okay. Yeah? Let's do this. Ah, terrific. 
Remarkably, James had convinced 20th Century Fox to fully fund a scientific excursion, a deep dive in the Atlantic. He began prepping, studying the blueprints of the Titanic, and plotting out the path for a series of dives to capture the remains of the world's largest and most famous shipwreck, a symbol of man's achievement, arrogance, and failure in the face of nature. His story would humanize these 50,000 tons of iron at the bottom of the ocean, weaving a tale of romantic love that could never be. For the first time in James' life, it was not only his brain propelling his ideas, but also his heart. It had been nine years since Aliens, and Jamie Horner had become a highly respected composer in Hollywood, working with Ron Howard on Apollo 13, and recently Mel Gibson on Braveheart. James knew things had ended awkwardly, and Jamie had reportedly sworn he'd never work on another of his films. James was calling to try to change his mind. Hello? Hey, Jamie. It's uh, Jim Cameron. Hey, uh, I know it's probably weird to hear from me. I know it's a long time ago now. What's that? I really yanked you around on Aliens. There was a lot going on, but uh, it wasn't cool. Oh. Jamie always knew James came with a bit of an ego. He was always confident in what he was doing, so it was surprising to hear him like this. I guess what I wanted to say is that I'm sorry. Um... I'm, I'm sorry, man. Oh. Wow. Well, thank you, Jim. I... To tell you the truth, I was rather irritated. I've not been your biggest fan these past few years. I know. You're not an easy man when you're in a bad mood. <laughs> Listen, I, I just wanted to try to smooth things over. I know how gifted you are, and I'd, I'd love to work with you again. On one condition. Yeah? Our relationship is constructive. You get to be in a good mood. <laughs> okay. I'm going to say, Jim, are you in a good mood? <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. And also, I get at least six weeks for the music. Weeks, not days. Absolutely. And you have to give me some space for music in between the explosions. <laughs> yes. No, no explosions in this one. No explosions? Well, maybe a couple explosions. <laughs> in that case... Maybe the next movie should have an original song. Uh, let's not push it. <laughs> well, I'd be delighted to create with you again, Jim. Stay tuned for a preview of the next episode of Blockbuster and a short conversation about this episode. Hey, I'm Ross Marquand. I play the role of James Cameron in Blockbuster. Thanks so much for listening, and be sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. On the next episode of Blockbuster... We're for descent. Roger, roger. All right, here we go. James goes where no film director has gone before. And release, release, release where even their cutting-edge technology will be tested by nature. Hey, hey, slow it down. Slow it down. Engines are off. We're still moving. Fly us out. I am trying. We're gonna hit. Fuck, fuck. That's coming up on Episode 8 
of Blockbuster, the story of James Cameron. I'm the series creator, Matt Schrader. I'm Fernando Arroyo Lascurain, and I'm the composer. And this is Peter Bovitz, the sound designer. And this is our creator chat about episode seven. You just heard from Blockbuster, the story of James Cameron. And uh, we start this episode with another sequence I really liked of James and his father, Philip, in the car driving to Buffalo for James to take scuba lessons. And this is a moment of of bonding between them. Philip, of course, wants to see his son's interest shift from science fiction novels into the real sciences. And James obviously has a passion for oceanography. In fact, at the time, young James was really fascinated by the TV specials of underwater explorer Jacques Cousteau. So Philip, as a father, you can understand, really wanted to support that as as James was getting into high school. And Fernando, I really like the training montage music that you built to accompany Peter's sound design for this scuba sequence as he's starting to take these classes. Yeah, what was interesting is that when we were talking about this opening, we wanted to showcase also a tender moment between James and his dad towards the beginning, especially when he learns mm-hmm. of his Scottish heritage and we introduce That's right. a melody that is referencing the melodies we established for both James and his dad. And it's kind of their father-son melody. I thought it was a really nice motif, by the way. The idea of bringing back those bagpipes mm-hmm. to w- when the dad is talking. It just made it feel so, I think, fatherly. You know, And it supports, I think, really strongly James being pulled between this very traditional side and also this this you know kind of curiosity that he has for things that are are very new at the time you know 2001 a space odyssey is uh is a game changer for him and this kind of being on the cutting edge of things that are technological but also have you know a lot of this scientific exploration and you know the cutting edge to it and this leads into the montage sequence uh where we hear some of those watery sounds that we introduced in the first episode And there's a nice resolution of the melodic material there. In this specific episode, music really played a huge role because it really underscored all those different layers that we're talking about. And Mm -hmm. a lot is happening in those years that when James is disappointed in the abyss and he's doing all these big action movies. Right, right. And when we jump back into his timeline, you know, we start that in August 1989 with that appearance on David Letterman, which struck me as odd because even at that point, David Letterman seemed unfamiliar with the name James Cameron. He kind of yeah. says it, mm-hmm. you know, uh, James Cameron, here he is. Uh, here's here here's this director. And he's clearly not a household name yet. In fact, this is such a short interview because James is the second guest on the show that night. The first one was comedian Sam Kinison. So James is clearly not the uh, most important person around here. David Letterman's kind of coasting along, reading from his his note cards. And then we follow James through two of his next movies until about 1995 and, and Terminator 2 and True Lies. But there's something missing still in these. You know, those movies are not plugging into that passion for underwater discovery just yet until he watches mm-hmm. the documentary right because al, that yes. changes everything al giddings documentary right and al he met while he was working on the abyss and we'll actually talk to al giddings in a future bonus interview i had the privilege of chatting with him about some really interesting things really a pioneer of cinematography who ends up working with james on titanic yeah and 
as you can imagine, once he has the spark of that idea, uh, he goes full force with it. Yep. I mean, he goes straight to Peter Turnin at 20th Century Fox, who ends up basically saying, okay, let's do it. And keep in mind, that conversation started completely differently. It started off with like, oh, you're doing an action movie or something. Like, no, I'm doing Romeo and Julia underwater. Right. And nobody expected that move. And everyone criticized that move, in fact. Fernando, the final scene of this episode, mm-hmm. James calls and makes up with his composer, Jamie Horner. And this comes after... Uh, Jamie really felt like he'd been yanked around a little bit on Aliens with, you know, just a couple days to uh, to put together the music for this enormous movie. Yeah, there's probably nothing more stressful for a composer than have a deadline very close and then within days of having to record the orchestra, having to re-edit everything. It's a monumental task and it's mm-hmm. close to impossible even though it's been done a few times and... More and more it happens these days with digital editing. So just for fun, we decided to have Fernando do it on this episode too. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah, it's a very interesting moment to hear them reconcile because, you know, these relationships that we always think as iconic, whether it is John Williams and Spielberg or in this case, James Horner and uh, James Cameron, there's something that it's something that has really defined uh, the filmmakers as well. Mm -hmm. And... This reconciliation is a very important moment with James Horner saying, are you going to be in a good mood? I'm, I'm going to ask you if you're in a good mood and I need you to be in a good mood. <laughs> right. And I think that's yep. such a fantastic way of approaching. And, yep. you know, in this sequence, we get to hear his James Horner's theme fully fleshed out and develop into, into uh, James Cameron building his theme. Our bonus interview for this episode is the second part of my conversation with James' friend, Bill Wisher, who also co-writes the screenplay of Terminator 2. So we'll uh, chat about that experience and how they convinced Arnold to uh, to do the sequel. He tells the story about calling up Arnold directly with Jim. And we'll be back to talk more after the next Underwater chapter of Blockbuster, Episode 8. For Fernando Arroyo Lascarain and Peter Baviets, I'm Matt Schrader. Thank you for listening, and be sure to rate and review Blockbuster wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. Blockbuster is written and narrated by me, Matt Schrader. Sound design by Peter Baviets. Original music by Fernando Arroyo Lascarain. Produced by Elena Baviets. Starring Ross Marquand. For more on Blockbuster, follow us on social media at Blockbuster Pod or visit us online to support the creators at getblockbuster.com. Blockbuster is an original production of Epiclef Media.